Well, good morning. It is great to be back uh, with you uh, today. Uh, last week, I had the very great uh, privilege to be with Operation Christmas Child in Uganda. I occasionally um, go as a devotional speaker, but that means that I also get to participate. There were, there were four distributions, harvest events they call them, of those gift shoe boxes that we faithfully pack each year, as well as a lesson of the, the greatest journey. Um, last Sunday morning, I, I was at a church and they were doing that. Um, I, I am a huge, huge fan of OCC, but never more so than each time I have the opportunity to see the end results of our giving and our, and our labor. I, I want to tell you the program works. Those shoe boxes are gospel opportunities which open the door for a clear, child-friendly, consistent, compelling presentation of the gospel, after which those children are invited to a, that 12-week discipleship class, The Greatest Journey, uh, where many of them are either affirmed in their new faith or, or truly come to faith and then are enfolded uh, in the local church. This, this program is seeing... Um, millions of, of children saved and churches, thousands of them built. It is an incredible outreach and well worth our time and our resources. In fact, each time that I go, I come back just um, more and more convinced that we need to double our efforts. In fact, I'm going to tell you right now that I want us to do more shoeboxes this year than we've ever done before. And I know that many of you work with OCC. I'm thankful for your service. I'm also thankful for Stephen Broom um, filling the pulpit last Sunday, challenging us to pursue a heart of a, a steward rather than that of an owner. He reminded us that from the time that we are born, we, we, we seek to grab everything that we possibly can for ourselves, but as redeemed followers of Jesus, we come to understand that we actually own nothing. He owns it all. We are mere stewards, but, but, but how we handle that stewardship brings him great glory. Well, as I was traveling back on that 32-hour trip from hotel to my home, the, 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 the first flight of the journey took me from Entebbe, Uganda to Amsterdam. Now, thankfully, I got some sleep because the next leg from Amsterdam to Detroit, well, there would be no sleep. In addition to being on the last row before the bathrooms, Thank you, Wilcox Travel, which opened and, and shut the entire way. I won't mention the smell. There was a family with four small children sitting directly in front of me. Did I mention small? Now, to be clear, I like children. But I, I had to keep reminding myself, I had just traveled all the way to Uganda because I like children. <laughs> I've traveled with children, so I understand the challenge, but these were a handful. And as I observed, the, the mother was on one end of the parental spectrum, the father on the other. What, what do I mean? Well, the mother was quick to coddle and soothe her children, offering words of encouragement and distraction for oft-crying children.
I like children. The father, on the other hand, was more stern. He was constantly correcting and disciplining with, I'll admit, some success. And I'm sure buried in there somewhere was a father's heart of love. It was just not readily discernible. I think we would all agree that children need both, both loving care and encouragement as well as, when necessary, loving, loving correction and discipline, even warning. This is what we have seen from the author of Hebrews in our continuing study. He was writing a pastoral, dare I call it, a parental letter to Jewish believers whom he obviously loves and for for whom he was deeply concerned. You see, these believers were facing severe persecution. And as a result, at least three things happened. First, some, perhaps for fear of reprisal, had removed themselves from fellowshipping with other believers. We're going to see that in in chapter 10. Second, as a result, the church, these believers, had become rather stagnant in their growth. By this time, they, 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 they should have grown to a level of spiritual maturity where they could teach, but they had remained immature and had to be taught again the elementary principles of the faith. Third, some were... Well, they were actually considering quitting and returning to Judaism. Now, now all of that, I want you to notice, listen up, all of that went together. To leave the fellowship of the church results in immaturity, which leads to the possibility of apostasy. You cannot leave the church without repercussions. This was a huge problem. And so the the letter contains both loving encouragement and stern but loving warning. There are five warning passages in the book. We've looked at the first two. We'll complete the third today, much to your joy. In the first one, found in chapter 2, he challenges his readers to pay closer attention to what they, they had heard so that they would not drift. You see, if those under the old covenant in the Old Testament drifted and received a just penalty for their disobedience, how will we under the new covenant escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And the implication is we won't. In the second warning found in chapters 3 and 4, he doesn't want any to be found um, uh, with an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Instead, he said, encourage one another day after day, moment after moment, if you're a Christ, never mind, so that no one will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast firm to the end. Conversely, if we do not hold fast firm to the end, we have not become partakers of Christ. So, warning, don't, don't harden your hearts, brothers and sisters. Third warning in which we find ourselves is found in chapters 5 and 6, and it is the most severe of the book. In fact, some suggest the most severe warning in the entire New Testament. First, he scolds them for having remained spiritually immature. By this time, they, they ought to have been feasting on meat, but they, they had continued to suckle on the milk of the Word. 
By this time, they ought to be teachers, but again, instead, they, they needed someone to teach them the basic principles of the Christian faith. Time to grow up, he was saying. And to remain in spiritual immaturity, to not grow, is to put yourself at risk. We talked to that, about that. I, I asked, how many times have you heard people say, well, I'm saved, but that's really all I need? I mean, I'm going to heaven, got my fire insurance, but I'm, they don't say it that way, but, but I'm, not, I'm not really into, into church or, or, or growing in the deep truths of the Bible. Don't bother me with doctrine, all that deep stuff. That just divides. One of my seatmates on the way to Uganda, a young ex-Marine, and I was rather brave, now an engineer, told me just those words. Yes, he said, I, I know Christ, but I'm not really into church. <laughs> I do it my own way. It reminded me of Stephen's sermon from a few weeks ago. And his own way did not include other believers. Here's my question. Can we do that? He may or may not have gotten a little mini sermon. I mean, after all, I had just finished Hebrews chapter, or, or, or the, that passage in Hebrews chapter 6. Well, to him and to us, the author offers his severest warning in chapter 6. Read it with me again. One sentence, Hebrews 6 verse 4 says, for in the case, and actually, actually the first word in this very long sentence is the word impossible for emphasis. Impossible it is in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. That, that is severe more than that, that is troubling. Last time we were in Hebrews, I suggested that there are three basic interpretations of this text depending on your system of theology, you know, if you're into doctrine. The first says that these are true believers who apostatize. That is, having once been saved, they, they willfully turn from Christ or reject Him and His gospel, thus losing their salvation. The thinking goes like this, I am the one who put myself into Christ and therefore I am the one who can take myself out. No one else can take me out, but I can take myself out. If that is the case, the author says it is impossible for them to repent again. Now, while this position is held uh, by some, I frankly, I told you I reject it because of the mini passage, passages which clearly say a believer cannot lose his or her salvation. More than that, just to be clear, you are not the one who put yourself into Christ. He did it. He put you in, and He will never lose you. Which leads to the second position, which says that these are not true believers. They are, they are almost believers. That is, they had been exposed to, to Christ and the gospel through the covenant community that is the church, and may, maybe even at some point they made a profession of faith. But, but, but after time, they, they had faltered. They had walked away, thus proving that they were not truly Christians. We've all known people like that, haven't we? People that we love, people that used to be with us and who are no longer, not just because they've fallen into a life of sin, but they have rejected the faith. 
John says that they went out from us because they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have remained with us. But by their going, they proved they were not really of us. I want you to know that this is the most common understanding within the Reformed camp of, to be clear, of which I am a part. Now, last time I did not elaborate on this position, but let me, let me share a few thoughts. The idea is the author is continuing his warning using the example again of the disobedient Israelites in their wilderness wanderings. Follow. They, they too had been recipients of God's grace. Having witnessed his miraculous power through the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. I mean, they had seen those things with their own eyes. Further, they had personally experienced God's rich provision in, in water from the rock, manna from heaven, quail from the desert. And yet, and yet, even though God had miraculously delivered them, cared for them, they did not trust him, nor did they enter the land of promise. As, they, as a result, they died in the wilderness, don't miss this, in un belief. They were almost believers. In other words, having experienced all the things that this author just listed in chapter, uh, in chapter 6, having been brought to the very border of the land of promise, they did not enter because they were actually unbelievers. Again, I want you to know this is commonly held, uh, commonly held position within my personal camp and, and one that I understand, I, I could actually embrace. It actually squares with some other passages. It's possible that they could be like the, the middle two soils of that parable of the, soil, of the soils. Remember, there were four soils, the, the, the hard ground, the, the rocky ground, the thorny soil, and the, and the good soil. They, they could have been like the, those middle two. They, they, they could have been like the soil that received the gospel in the rocks. They sprung up quickly, but when persecution came, that sounds familiar. There was no lasting life, no perseverance, no fruit-producing change of life. Not true believers. They, 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 they could have been like the thorny soil that received the seed and, and again sprung up with signs of life, but when the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth distracted them, they were, they were, choked, they were choked out. Not true believers. I, I get that. My only problem with this position is the language in Hebrews 6, is awfully strong and seems to make these people, I would suggest, believers. So get that. Position one, believers who apostatize, that is, they lose their salvation. Position two, almost believers who walk away, in both cases, impossible to renew them to repentance. So you're either a Christian and lost it, you can't be saved again, or you were almost believer, walked away, you can't be saved. By the way, in Matthew chapter 13, which contains Jesus' teaching in the parables, this, this parable of the sower is followed, I think, intentionally with the parable of the wheat and the tares. You may remember that one. The kingdom of heaven is, is like a man who sows good seed in his field. But, but later that night, while he's sleeping, his enemy came and, and, and sowed tares or weeds in the field. They, they both grew up. And, and, and the service asked the master at some point, Sometime later, do, do you want us to go out and root out the weeds? How did the master respond? You remember that? No. Wait. Because if while you're rooting out the weeds, you might accidentally root out the good wheat, the good seed. 
Wait until the end, and then we will separate the wheat from the tares and burn the tares. The point? The wheat are the children of God, and the tares are the children of the evil one. Sometimes you can't tell which one is which. Sometimes you may think that a wheat is a tear, or tear is wheat. The end of the age, God will send forth His angels. He'll gather them up, and ultimately, the judgment of their eternal souls belongs to the righteous judge. Now, this does not mean that we do not judge actions. This does not mean that we don't judge and confront sin. This doesn't mean that we don't practice church discipline. Of course we do. But the judgment of their eternal souls belongs to Him. We may become confused. Back to Hebrews chapter 6. Again, the language seems to point, I think, to true believers. Point, position one, true believers. Position two, almost believers. Position three, I'm saying, are true believers. So what do we do if that is the case? Do true believers lose their salvation? I think not. Which leads to the third interpretation of the passage toward which I lean Yes, these are true believers. And yes, this is an actual, real warning. Don't apostatize. If you do, it will be impossible. Listen to me, believers. It will be impossible to renew you to repentance. But good news. Just as God's call to salvation is always effective, so also the warning is also always effective. Meaning, those who are true believers will hear and heed the warning. Here's the point this morning. Are you listening? God has not only ordained the ends of our salvation, but also the means. And the means includes faithful perseverance. Faithful perseverance, people. To include, at times, father to child severe Warning, are you listening? Encouragement, yes. Warning. Now, does this mean that there have never been true believers who have walked away, lost their salvation? Yes, I do not think the true believer has ever lost his salvation. But... Have there been those who were almost believers, position two, who were within the church community, maybe made a profession of faith and walked away? Of course there have been. Is it possible to renew them, those almost believers, to repentance? Not if yours is position number two. If they were almost believers and walked away, it is impossible to renew them to repentance. But, 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 but you said they never actually repented. Exactly. Exactly. Which leads to my position. Almost believers can repent because they never really have. But if true believers, are you listening? Were to walk away, if this warning were not effective... It would indeed be impossible to renew you to repentance. But in the end, God knows the wheat from the tares. Does he know you? Sobering. 
So that was the severe warning from two weeks ago, after which I promptly left the country. And the warning to us is do not walk away. If you do, there will be no returning to repentance. But if you truly know Christ, you will hear and you will heed. God will give you everything that you need to persevere. Are you struggling right now? Trust him. He's given you everything that you need. Which brings us finally to our text this morning. Having warned us, the author turns to encouragement in verses 9 to 12. Look at it with me. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking rather severely in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This warning passage, you may remember, began back in chapter 5, verse 11 with these words. Concerning him, that is, Jesus or perhaps the Melchizedekan priesthood, concerning that I have a lot to say, but it's hard to explain because you're sluggish. You become dull of hearing. You become slow. You become lazy. In our text this morning, he repeats that very word in verse 12. I give you this warning and encouragement, this severe warning that was so hard a couple of weeks ago, I gave it to you so that you will not be sluggish. Slow, lazy, dull of hearing. Wake up! It's the same word. These words form the bookends to this warning, which means we arrive at the end of this severe warning today, much to your joy. Notice, he ends with encouragement. Yes, he has warned them with the most severe words in the book, but he wants to encourage them and us. I want you to hear me. He does not want you to be discouraged. He does not want you to live in doubt. Am I saved or am I not? The encouragement, I think, is that we see the truth that true believers will persevere and thereby inherit the promises of the gospel of salvation. Meaning, do do I want you to be nervous, fearful, overly concerned with these warnings? Yes and no. Because I am firmly convinced of better things concerning you. The outline of our text goes like this, because his confidence in the readers and the reason or the basis for his confidence, followed by the encouragement that comes in the midst of that confidence. Having just warned them severely, he says, but beloved. It's the only time in this entire letter that he uses that term. It means dearly loved friends. I'm talking to you this morning. Beloved. We are convinced, actually the the word means to be firmly convinced, to be absolutely sure of better things concerning you and the things that accompany salvation, though I am speaking rather severely in this way. 
Yes. In the case of those who were either almost Christians or Christians who walk away, there is no hope of them returning to repentance. But notice the first and second persons that he used at the beginning of chapter 6, he returns to now in chapter 9. When he gives the warning, he speaks in the third person concerning those, concerning those, but those are not you. Because concerning you, I'm convinced of better things. It's a favorite word for this author, better. In fact, you could summarize the entire letter with that word, better. Jen Wilkins in her women's Bible study in the book of Hebrews simply entitles it better. That's a great title. Largely, Jesus is better. We've seen that. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses or Joshua. He's better than, than Aaron in the entire Levitical sacrificial system. And, and as such, he has brought a much better, an infinitely better salvation. And so the author can say, because you are followers of Jesus and have a better, more lasting salvation, I am convinced of better things concerning you. The, the, the things that accompany salvation. What things accompany salvation? Well, it's the things he's been talking about. But the primary context of the entire book of Hebrews is this. With this salvation comes the assurance of hope. Listen, through your perseverance. I am convinced that you have this salvation, and as a result, you will persevere. I'm convinced of that. I know you will. Listen, you may have been here during these warning passions, passages, these three so far in Hebrews, and, and you've been alarmed. I want you to be concerned that, that, that you persevere. I, I want you to be C- concerned that you, you remain faithful till the end. I want you to be. But, but all of that and not worried that you will somehow lose your salvation, never to be renewed to repentance. Because if you know Jesus, beloved, I am beloved. I am convinced, I am sure of better things concerning you and the eternal salvation that you have. God will give. In fact, he has given you everything that you need by his spirit to remain faithful to the end. So I am pleading with you. I am commanding you. I am doing everything within me that I possibly can to encourage you to persevere. How can I be so sure about you? Point two. The basis of my confidence in you. Look at verse 10. For God. Stop right there. My confidence in me, my confidence in you, is not so much in me and you, but in God who is faithful. Salvation is all of him anyway. He is the one who placed you into Christ, and he who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If you don't hear anything else, hear that this morning from Philippians chapter 1. He who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion. I'm convinced of this. For God is not unjust. What a statement. Of course he's not unjust. But he's not unjust to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and then still ministering to the saints. There are two sources of the author's confidence for his readers and two sources of confidence that I have as your pastor in you. First, I've already said it, God. 
God is a just God and he will keep his promises to those he has saved. He will, by his spirit, cause those who know him to persevere. I know he will do that in you. This doesn't mean that you don't occasionally fall into sin. And if you're in sin this morning, stop. Persevere. Follow Christ. Second, my confidence in you is in you, in your, as seen in your faithful work, proving the reality of your love. Now, don't miss it. He does not say proving the reality of your love for others, <laughs> but proving the reality of your love for his name. The name of a person then represented all that he was. To say that God will remember your work and your love for his name is saying he will remember your love for him. After all, that is what motivates you, or it should be what motivates you to serve. Your love for him. You see, ultimately, the Christian faith is about God. It is for God. It is to God. It is because of your love for him that that we work, because our desire is to bring glory to his name. So here's here's a question for you. Are you struggling in your Christian faith? You struggling this morning, if you were to be honest? If I could peer into the very depths of your soul and see where you are in your walk with Christ, if, you were, if, you were, if I could lay you bare right now, if you're struggling, here's the, here's the solution. Love God. It's the first and greatest commandment, is it not? From which all of the other ones flow. And you cannot switch those around. Love God. And you will remain firm. And by doing so, we prove through our work because of our love for him that we know him, listen, and he knows us. Love God. Passion for the love of God. Don't miss the last part of the verse. How do they demonstrate their love for God? By ministering and continuing to minister to the saints. We prove our love for God by loving and serving each other. Sink in. Say you love God? How are you doing with each other? How had they done this in the early days of their faith before they started struggling as they were now? We read these words in chapter 10. But remember... Remember the former days when after having been, after after being enlightened, that is, he uses that in chapter 6, after having been saved, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. You you suffered. How? Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches. You were ridiculed. And and not only that, in tribulations. So partly is by what you received, but more than that, I mean, but also partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So not only did you experience suffering yourself, but you gladly shared with those who suffered. You didn't hide out from them. How? For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully. (laughs) That's an interesting word. You shared, you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, of your stuff. They took it. And you were glad. You can have it. How can, how can you say that? Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. That's how. Because there's one they can't touch. 
take it. This is what Stephen talked about last week. You can have it all. Because there's something you can't touch. Joyfully accepted. We'll talk about that passage when we get to it in a few months. Clearly, there was a time when they served their brothers and sisters, when they suffered with them. This is how they evidence, this is how we evidence our love for God. It's one thing to show up at church on Sundays, sing some worship songs, talk about, oh, how I love Jesus. Good. It is an altogether different thing to prove our love by caring for one another. You cannot say that you love God, but you don't really care for His people. Remember that young former Marine who was my seatmate on the way to Amsterdam? The one who was doing it his way? The one who said he knew the gospel, just didn't have time for or interest in the church? Can you do that, I asked? Let me answer the question. No. You, you cannot. We prove our genuine faith by our loving action toward one another. brings us to our last point. Given his confidence in his readers, and frankly us, and given that God will faithfully and justly remember the proof of our salvation, he encourages us. Listen, do you remember? Continue. And we desire. This was the purpose of writing this pastoral parental letter. We desire that each one of you, without exception, listen, I am talking to you People of Alliance, every person in here who knows Jesus, I desire that each one of you, everyone, I don't even want the majority, I want all of you to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. What an encouraging verse. His reason for writing was a strong desire that every reader, to include every one of us, show the same diligence the diligence that they had showed at the first and thereby experienced the full assurance of our hope until the end. Our perseverance in the faith gives us assurance that we are indeed in the faith. Yes, it is the gospel and the gospel alone that saves us, but it is our perseverance that gives us the assurance of our salvation. Praying a prayer and never demonstrating, never showing, giving evidence of a changed life, I'll let God decide if you're a weed or a tear. I want you to listen carefully. The Christian faith is not a sprint. It is a marathon. Many come to faith in Christ and are at the first, as is often said, on fire for a while. But then the challenges, or dare I say, the routine of the Christian faith set in, and if we are not Careful, we can become cold, indifferent, aloof. Cold, indifferent, aloof. It requires diligence, faithful work, as we showed at the first, to continue. 
Here is the truth. Some of you have been cold for a very long time. Oh, you haven't walked away. You're still here punching the Sunday morning time clock. But your love for God is as evidenced in your love for the saints, for each other, has become hardened, lifeless, cold. You know who I'm talking to. Say, what? I love my family. Good for you. Peter says, what credit is if you love those who love you back? Hardened, lifeless, cold. Is it time to wake up? When is it time to re-engage? When is it time to recommit? When is it time to pursue spiritual vitality? Aren't you tired of being dead? I would suggest the time is now. Has it not been long enough? Are you not weary of going through the motions Again, punching this Sunday morning time clock. This is his purpose in the letter, to encourage us with confidence that we know Christ, that it is time right now. Christian life is a marathon. Stop sitting on the sidelines. It's time to run together. Further, do you know what will make us attractive as a church to this community around us? I know some of you are thinking, well, it's how we serve them, and that is true, and we ought to do that. We we ought to be out in the community, penetrating our community and our culture. We ought to be serving them in every way that we can. But what will make us most attractive will be our sacrificial love and service to one another. I want this community to look at Alliance and say, my, how they love each other. When people in this church are going through a particular challenge, whatever it is, physical, financial, emotional, relational, I don't know, but all of a sudden we show up and we surround them and we care for them, then their neighbors, okay, we don't have neighbors here, but, 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 but people they work with, people they know, will go, man, look at that church. That will attract them. They'll want to be part of that. Finally, look at verse 12. I'm done. The bookend to the warning. I want you to be diligent so that you will not be sluggish, lazy, lethargic, just warm in a seat. I've often been asked... Why is it we're building a bigger auditorium? Is it so that we can get more butts in the seat? I hope not. Instead, he says, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Pastorally, I say to you this morning, don't be lazy. Don't be sluggish. Instead, imitate, follow those around you who are models of faith. 
Yes, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We'll see that in chapter 12. But in chapter 11, that famous hall of faith, he suggests that we can find encouragement by looking at those around us who have and are running well. And through faith, they patiently wait. Don't miss that. It is not their patience that merits the fulfillment of the promises. No, it is their faith. But their faith produces patient endurance, perseverance to the end, proving the reality of faith by which they receive the promises. What promises? Those throughout this book. One of my favorites, a city. I don't know about you, but I'm waiting for a city whose architect and builder is God, aren't you? Don't you want to get rid of this stuff? Most of all, an eternal salvation, eternal life in the presence of God. Are you struggling? Are you asleep? Are you sluggish? Wake up. Look around. There are those worth imitating. We must endure, people. My brothers and sisters, beloved, we must persevere. And I want to say to you this morning, you have what it takes through faith by the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit of God to persevere further. We have each other. Let's stand for prayer. Father, you intend so much for us. You, you intend for us uh, more than intend. You have given us your spirit by whom we can grow. We, we can become more and more like your son. We, we can faithfully love you. We, we can imitate those around us who are ahead of us in the marathon. And we can love and serve each other. Now, Father, this is the church. This is what you intend for us. Would you forgive us for our lethargy? Would you forgive us for our sluggishness? Would you forgive us for our sleep? And would you help us to fix our eyes on Christ? Would you help us to pursue him? Would you help us to wake up? Would the, would the warnings be real to us? Would, would they poke us and prod us and encourage us to follow faithfully? Would you help us to remember the former days? And would you help us to move on, to go on, to be all that you would have us to be? In Christ's name, amen.